This is unstructured. Hey, everybody. I have a return guest today. Pat Flynn was originally in episode 92. Now, he is the author of How to Be Better at Almost Anything and also the host of the Pat Flynn Show. And I have Pat on, though, because when we were recording together, I'm actually appearing on his show. We started talking about philosophy, of which I am woefully ill-informed. I just hang out in circles with people who talk about it quite a lot. And Pat, well, Pat actually has studied philosophy, and I believe you even have a degree, correct, Pat? I do. So, you know, I've been a student of philosophy for many years uh, in college. I went a little specific, you could say. So instead of doing a majoring in philosophy, I majored in economics because for me, that was a subset of philosophy. I still very much believe that and, you know, was able to minor in philosophy. And then I am finishing my master's in systematic philosophy currently. What is systematic philosophy versus just philosophy? Well, <laughs> yeah, it's like no philosophy, you know, is a sort of second order discipline that that searches around at all the underlying assumptions that often inform um, first order disciplines like, you know, biology or chemistry. It's the only study of knowledge that runs off of no assumptions. It, it keeps the books on all other forms of knowledge, including itself. And we, we can get into that a little bit. So my emphasis in, in systematic philosophy or analytic philosophy um, and it, it it could branch off in various ways, and of course, you kind of have to pick where you want to lean. And I know this is this is ironic for people who may have heard the previous episode where I'm talking about generalism, uh, trying to be good to great at many things. But you you do have to specialize to to some extent because it's such a a wide um, field. I mean, philosophy is the love of wisdom, and there's there's so much to gain wisdom about. So my emphasis uh, in my master's tends to be on on metaphysics, natural theology, and morality. Uh, so I spend a lot of time in those categories and I do, but I do think it is very important. And classically, the best philosophers were generalists. They weren't people uh, of the kind of school of philosophers today who will hardcore specialize in, in one specific area and then be almost wholly ignorant in others. And that's very, very difficult to do in philosophy because everything is so interrelated that it's, it's hard to, to justify a position in any one area. I mean, to give you an example, uh, epistemology is a study of knowing. It's hard to just look at how we know things as humans without also considering metaphysical questions of, of what humans are. So one field often in, inadvertently has to drag in another field or study of knowing to make sense of it. But somehow as academia has progressed, people have become almost hyper-specialized that I think that they start to know more and more about almost nothing, which is the reverse of how the great classical philosophers used to be. So are you saying we're suffering the uh, Dunning-Kruger effect then? Yeah, in, in large effect. Yeah, I, I really do. Uh, and it's not just philosophy, it's science as well. I mean, economics is um, very much like that. So like always ignore, you know, when somebody says like all economists think the same because all economists are not even studying the same thing. They're often hyper specialized in, in one very specific um, often unique area that even a hyper knowledge in that area will not necessarily carry over to to other areas of study, even in economics and certainly not philosophy as a whole. So specialization is important. It's, it's how we make progress in certain areas. But there's, there's something in, also very important that's being lost in the compartmentalization of knowledge, not just in, in the sciences, but philosophy as a whole. People aren't un knowing how to pull it all together in, in the way that the great 
classic philosophers from Plato to Aristotle, Aquinas, and, and many contemporaries today who still take this approach are, are able to do. So I've tried to focus myself on areas that I think do pull together various branches of knowledge because I'm a, I'm a big picture guy. I like I like to kind of get it like hey, what's the what's what's really going on here, and then I'll investigate in, into specific areas as becomes necessary. Now all of that is probably hugely meaningless, um, mostly jargon to people listening in, but we can surely dive into some specifics as we go along. Okay, and I do want to define the Dunning Kruger effect. I don't like to throw out things without actually stating what they are. It, the colloquial definition of mind would be essentially the newer you are to something, the more knowledge you perceive having. Mm-hmm. And the deeper your knowledge is, the less you think you know. Yeah, I, I don't know if um, – so I, like I said, I think that that's partly true. Um, I think that the the reverse can also be true where specialists who do come to know more and more about one very specific area of knowledge – often make extrapolations that they are not permitted to, that they have no justification in, in making. For example, when, when physicists, who might be brilliant in physics, then go on to make philosophical claims or metaphysical claims, which are just, they just are just totally unrelated. And, and often they sound very <laughs> stupid to the philosopher when they do things like, like that, you know? Okay, we're leading right into it. Mm-hmm. You're talking about the, uh, if you only have a hammer syndrome. Um Jordan Peterson. Jordan Peterson. Well, I wasn't even thinking of Peterson, but I mean, he's a... Well, he is a um, psychologist Mm -hmm. who is um, delving into philosophy because I believe postmodernism falls under philosophy. Well, yeah. And, you know, I like Peterson. I like what he's he's doing. Uh, I, I like where he's leading people, generally speaking. But I have been critical of some of what Peterson has, has said. And I think Peter, Peterson is his best actually when, you know, when he's very clear, but he's his worst when he's really ambiguous. And I don't think he quite gets postmodernism. I don't think he quite understands it. Uh, he understands it enough to, to realize that he thinks it's a threat, but postmodernism is really a result of many philosophical threats that came before. It's, it's really kind of a bastard child of many very bad philosophies that we're already suffering the ill effects of. Um, and of course, it's it's still pernicious in itself, but it's not like um, it just it, it came out of nowhere. And because of postmodernism, we now have all this this cultural lunacy. No, postmodernism is is part of the cultural lunacy because of many other bad philosophies that, that came before. Um, he also tries to lump neo-Marxism and postmodernism together, and they're not quite the same thing. And postmodernism is 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 very hard to define because it's not just one thing, it's often a, a collection of various mutually conflicting, often self-defeating ideas. Um, so he's right to, to criticize it and, and is, as, as anybody, I think, is, is right to criticize postmodernism. It's, it's ultimately incoherent. But I don't think he quite understands it to the, to the extent he thinks he does he, um, or, or asserts. He gets that it's, that it's not right. That it, which is weird because he's kind of a pragmatist when it comes to truth, and we can get into that. So how he reconciles those is interesting if he even tries to. Um, but but yeah, I don't think he quite gets post. And why why would he? Right, he's a psychologist. He's a Jungian. He he doesn't study philosophy, but he he's quick to to attack certain parts of philosophy. What I'm wondering is, and maybe I'm wrong because uh, to be truthful and tell everybody, I haven't read more than one sentence of any postmodernist. Mm-hmm. I just have zero 
or little desire. The um, texts look dense and I just have other things going on. It's not that important to me. Is he possibly just lumping together kind of a giant ad hominem? Like he just knows these people are into postmodernism and he doesn't like those particular people. So he's just kind of throwing them together. Marxists, postmodern people, things like that. Yeah. A number of, of Marxists and neo-Marxists actually, um, they very much do not like postmodernism. They're, they're at odds with it. Now I would say that postmodernism is, is, is itself, um, in part and probably to a very large degree, a result of, of Marxist ideology, but it is separate from it. So I think what you're saying is is fairly accurate. I think he's making associations that aren't entirely causally related, but they're not entirely false either. And just to give people a general idea, postmodernism, um, if we're going to try and and unpack what it is at all, is is again a series or of, of, of lines of thought or thinking, schools of philosophy that tries to undermine the the foundations. It's anti-foundationalist, um, trying to undermine, you know, all the sort of axioms of, of human knowledge that, that we, that we all take for granted as a proper and basic belief. Um, and they, they make very bold and often self-defeating assertions such as famously that there's no such thing as truth or there's no such thing as absolute truth. Now, the problem with that is that if that's true, then it also applies to postmodernism, and they're making a, a truth claim when they say there's no such thing as truth. So you you have to uh, apply like, the, like atheism is actually a belief. Sure, yeah. Well, atheism is a belief that that is true. Uh, atheism, classically defined, is the belief that there is no such person as God. It makes a positive claim, therefore, it has a burden of proof. It's not agnosticism. Agnosticism right. is withholding belief. It's it's a it's a claim to ignorance, and that person does not have. A burden of proof. But now, I was I was told um, by someone once that they see postmodernism as an attack on um, taxonomy. It's, uh, postmodernism is an attack on pretty much everything that Western civilization was was based on in some degree or another. But it starts and and in order to kind of push postmodernism through, in order to try and take down theories of truth, which are self-defeating, right? So I want to push that because that is that is a significant defeater, I believe, of postmodernism. They claim that there's no such thing as truth, which means that if that's true, then their truth claim can't be true. So it defeats itself. But if it's not true, then we don't have any reason to take postmodernism seriously. Can we stop for a second and, and dig? I hate to do it because I, I had to sit through the uh, Jordan Harbinger, Sam Harris mess about truth. Jordan Peterson, Sam Harris? I, yeah, Jordan Peterson, yeah. Sam Harris, sorry. Um, when they went into truth for two hours and talked past each other the whole time. Yeah, that was really bad. It was very frustrating. Now, what is truth? I interpret it as Sam Harris is looking for a fact and considers a fact to be truth. Whereas um, Jordan Peterson is seeing truth as uh, something directionally there, like pain is truth. Like somebody has pain, but you can't define pain specifically or an arrow shoots true as in a, a path. Yeah. So let's take this is this, their conversation as bad as it was, is a, is a good learning opportunity for a lot of people when it comes to philosophy. Um, of course, there's many different theories of truth, but the one that I think is correct would be something like the correspondence theory of truth, which is um, the shortest way to explain it is telling it like it is that what you think actually matches to an, an existing state of affairs, for example. So it's, it's the common sense definition of truth, the way people 
um, really perceive it. So if I say that I'm talking to Eric Hunley right now, and that's my belief, and that belief corresponds to an actually instantiated state of affairs, meaning that there is objectively a state of affairs of Pat Flynn talking to Eric Hunley, then my belief is a true belief. So you can get more technical with defining it, but the common sense, um, you know, intuition towards towards truth, of which most people have, is indeed, I believe, the correct one in philosophy, and we would call this the correspondence theory of truth. And I think that's what Sam is getting at. Now, the funny thing is, is that's really hard to justify on atheism. So Sam has a problem from from his and. So my story is I was an atheistic philosopher for many years who, who eventually became a Catholic. I, my, my process couldn't have taken me any, <laughs> more, any extreme. more to more opposites. It really couldn't. And part of it was epistemological and, and atheism itself tends to be very undermining. And I would argue that it was the, the sort of um, emergence of many atheistic philosophers that set the grounds for postmodernism. And I don't know if people even like Sam Harris can, can make that connection. And we can, we can go back to that in a minute. But I think where Sam is getting at is actually more, more accurate in terms of what truth is. I would just argue that he can't really justify that on his worldview. Whereas Peterson, from what I understand, and Peterson is often hard to understand, seems to be a pragmatist. He thinks that whatever is useful is true. And that is pretty widely rejected in, in philosophy. And I think that's a, a big failing of Peterson because we can think of, of many things that would be useful but aren't true. Uh, just to give a crude example, you know, maybe I don't run out in the street because I think there's monsters under the manhole cover, but that's useful for keeping me alive because then I don't get run over by a bus. But it's not true. It's pragmatic, but it's not true. So we can see that there's there's – even if there's one instance where that's not the case, it goes to show that this is not what truth is. So he's working off a very failed uh, theory of truth. Interestingly, um, I'm going to bring up another hot name, I guess, uh, Scott Adams. And Scott Adams has brought up the concept of being directionally true. Okay. Mm -hmm. As in what is being said is not specifically factual, but if you look at the overlying message, yeah, it's pretty much true. Yeah, and and what Adams is talking about there, and I I appreciate Adams from a marketing standpoint. He's very good at that. He's talking about a persuasion technique. Um, he's not he's not offering a a philosophical um, issue of what truth actually is. And, and part of when he was doing that, he was he was looking at Donald Trump and saying that okay, he's making a lot of exaggerated claims. They're not you know technically true. But they are what you said, directionally true. And he does this through various hyperbolic language. And what that does is it resonates with people because it sticks in their head because it is so hyperbolic and so exaggerated that he gets more attention than anybody else. And even though what he says on the details might not be entirely accurate, people generally agree with the truth of what he is saying, right? And and so from a from a persuasive standpoint, there's there's something of utility there. Now, whether it's ethical or not is a, is another philosophical question, but that's what Adam, my, I think of what Adams was getting at. He's looking at it from the matter of persuasion, not philosophy. Sure. I'm just wondering if there might be a slight bridge in there with the um, Peterson view of truth in the sense that um, it, homilies and stories that there's a truth there, like, you know, birds of a feather flock together, you know, whatever, different things, not specifically are factual, but yet over time, if you look at him, it, it is kind of true. Well, so so he's a Jungian, right? So he, you know, a lot of when he starts to talk, um, say about, 
metaphysics, which always gets messy with him because it's clear that he's only coming from a psych. If he would just do a bit more study in philosophy, I think it would it would help him a lot. Um, and then what he will try to do is explain away or explain in full the truth of a belief by his theory of how that belief came to originate, whether these are archetypes passed on through the collective consciousness or whatever. Now, there's huge debate in evolutionary psychology of whether that theory is even true or, or, or even remotely accurate. But let's, let's just grant it. Let's say that, th- that that is true. What Peterson is doing is he's actually committing a very crude, like, philosophy 101 logical fallacy. This is, this is called the genetic fallacy. And a lot of people fall prey to this. This is a good one for people to, to know. It's where, where people think that they can either validate or invalidate the truth of a belief by describing how somebody came to hold that belief or how that belief originated. For example, um, a little bit simpler would be something like, oh, Eric, you only believe that two plus two equals four because your dad told you that. And everybody knows that your dad is a liar. And that, mm. and that might be true. Maybe your dad did tell you that, and maybe your dad generally is a liar. But that has nothing to do one way or the other of whether or not two plus two actually equals four, for example. Or mm. people will say, well, you, you only um, believe that uh, democracy is a superior form of government because you were brought up in America. Again, might be true. Maybe that is the only reason you think of it. But that says nothing one way or another of whether or not your belief is true. That Same goes th- back to the ad hominem. Uh, yeah, it's it's not quite – it is a, directed at the person. It is a type of ad hominem, but specifically it falls under what we would call a Freudian fallacy because Freud was was very good at, at falling into these into the, these poor forms of reasoning. Same thing with religion, and, and Harris's book is like – and he has no excuse because he is a philosopher. His, his book, uh, Letters to a Christian Nation, literally begins with this very fallacy. The only reason that you're a Christian is because you were born in Ohio. If you were a Muslim, you'd be here. Again – that might be true, but it does nothing one way or another to show whether or not any of those religious beliefs are true or false. Are you with me? Sure. And, and, and Peterson falls into that type of mistake. And what you have to do is you have to evaluate truth claims independently. Okay, is this, is, is, you know, maybe this, this belief did originate from this source. Maybe it's not a justified belief. Maybe somebody did just inherit it. They didn't actually reason it out. But that tells us nothing of whether that belief is true or false. So it might be interesting to look at the origins in epistemology. And indeed, I, I spend a lot of time doing that. But it's a separate question. And it's not the only question that, that people should be asking. So that's, that's you know, what it's it in my head when well, yeah. talking about this mm-hmm. privilege and patriarchy. Yeah. Uh huh. Those both, I feel, line up exactly with that fallacy. Sure. Yeah. I mean, so example in mind. Uh, sure. Any, I, I'm a white male, so I am coming from the point of privilege, being such, and I am therefore part of the patriarchy because, of course, um, white males have dominated the conversation and everything is actually aligned for that. So all of my history and beliefs is coming from the spectrum that I was born a white male in a USA. Correct. That that would be right in line with an ad hominem. Or because you're a white male, you can't talk on matters of racism, for example. And we see this in political conversation all the time. Because you're a man, you can't talk on matters of abortion. Well, just that has nothing to do with it. Either my arguments are good or they're not good, but you have to address the arguments. You can't just attack the person. And that's exactly right. And that's kind of why I wanted to get into all of this, which we're already sprawling out, which is fun. <laughs> it is fun. But um, do you see a lot of that going on where um, 
views are being distilled, just really kind of following Jonathan Haidt's um, philosophy of the uh, rider and the elephant that we're emotionally deciding things and then we're just lumping everything together to um, fortify what we intuit. Well, that's a, it's a very funny thing because, you know, that, 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 that analogy has been given long before height and philosophers oh, sure. usually see that. it as silly because who's the person that was able to tell that it's an elephant? Who's, who's that person that has the complete view, right? Is that, is that height? If so, then why is your view the complete view and, and not the other one? And he, he needs to justify that. Um, in, in his defense, hold on. I'm, I, I do have to say this. He wrote an entire book, The Happiness Hypothesis, talking about all these principles and how they go all the way back to Buddha and Christ. Sure. I haven't read much of height, so I don't want to offer any specific opinion or, or praise or, or criticism. I've, I have okay. the general idea of some of the work he has done. Um, I've read some of his stuff on, on moral philosophy. I will say it's, it's pretty crude. Um, I think that he, again, he's looking at how did certain beliefs originate but I tend to not so if you tend to not want to go and critique a position I'm not fully familiar with just out of fairness. Okay. Um, but if you have examples, we can certainly we can talk about them. Um, I'm especially when you bring up the the Buddha or Christ thing. You know that's that's interesting. You know there might be something there or there might really not be, but we need to draw it out. Right. The thesis of the book essentially was that in modern day, I guess psychology, etc we are learning about these traits and we're even doing MRIs and brain scans that are um, proving them out. And he's saying, yeah, this seems like really original special research, but it's, it's been there. It's been there for thousands of years and these people have known it. Oh, yeah, well, sure. And that's, that's at variously in line with part of what I would hold in moral philosophy. And, and this is, I think one of the most important areas of study for anybody is the the study of, of morality and ethics and, and what it is, if it is anything, both in terms of the metaphysical question of what it is, the study of being, and also the epistemological question, which is what height is getting after of, well, how did these beliefs originate? And, you know, going back to Aristotle and up to Aquinas, you know, virtue ethics and natural law theory, you know, they all knew this, like they, they knew that morality wasn't just some sort of arbitrarily defined set of laws, you know, thrown down by God, but it was really a, a, a blueprint for human flourishing that acting in line with, with virtue, becoming a virtuous person was really the secret to flourishing as a human. And that some things in this world, some behaviors, some dispositions, some habits, some acts really are good for you objectively, whether you want them or not. And unlike more modern and postmodern philosophers who reverse that, they say, you know, something's good because you want it. It's it's actually the reverse, I would argue, that some things are really good for you. And those are the things that you should want and pursue, even if you don't right now. So, Damn it, at, so I have to eat my vegetables. Well, that's, yeah, certainly that's part of, that's a good example, right? Like, and we can think of many practical examples in terms of physical health, okay? We know very well that, you know, engaging in a regular exercise routine is good for you and that there might be, habits and dispositions you develop that that make that quite a turnoff here and now, but that you can train yourself, you can orient yourself uh, to become disposed to these these new habits, these new dispositions to to build virtue and discipline that 
and and you do kind of have to force yourself to an extent to to pursue the things that you know are good for you, even if you don't want them right now. But as you begin to develop them, you you not only will begin to want them, but they'll cause you to flourish in a sense that that you that you were lacking before. So if that's what Height is saying, and that's what he's getting at, um, then I think there'd probably be much agreement between us here. Um, you know, does it, does it go back to Buddha and Christ? I think that's a, it's a huge oversimplification. Well, that's only two that he used. He also used ancient Indian, um, but all around the world, different religions and philosophies that go way back. And, and this is right in line with natural law theory is that, you know, the natural law is something that can be discerned, be discerned through, through reason alone. It's written on our hearts, so to speak. Um, and that, that, we not our conscience not only is something that's worth following, but something that itself tells us that it needs to be formed. We all have this sort of basic intuition of good and bad, right and wrong, and we ha- and it's not infallible, but it's generally reliable to the extent that we're not being duped or deceived. And a lot of that can be self deception as well. Is that, like, is that like genetic memory? And I hate to go all over the place, but I'm I'm scattered so. Well, so there's there's two things here again, and one is kind of the epistemological question of of how how do we come to to know of these things, right? And one is the ontological question. So that's where I spend a lot of time in moral philosophy, meaning, okay, is morality objective? That's the first question, and and that's the one I'm primarily concerned with. Before we consider of how we come to know it, what is morality as such? And here is a very deep and searching question because we all intuit that there's that there are things in this world that are truly right and truly wrong and truly good and truly bad. Meaning we have we can kind of bracket it. We we intuit that there are some type of objective moral values uh, such as good and bad, but there are also objective moral duties such as that we ought to do the things that are good and avoid the things that are bad. That is our basic moral intuition and moral experience. And when I say objective, um, that's to be contrasted with with subjective in the sense that we believe that these things are real and that they're valid and binding apart from human opinion. That's the really powerful thing about it. We don't we don't believe that they're all just an illusion, for example. Is um, this get into the whole um, uh, selfish nature versus selfless nature? Because you had mentioned, you know, it's the right thing to do, the wrong thing to do. Um, I know there's kind of two arguments, some who would say that we have no free will. Hi, Sam Harris. Um, and those who say that we do have free will, then there are some who say that we do things for other people simply for our own greed or our own benefit because they're happy. It makes us happy. So really yeah. we're doing it for ourselves. Yeah. So this is the beauty of philosophy, right? You start going down one channel and it opens up a, a million others. So let's just take it <laughs> step by step right? <laughs> Before, because then we'll go all over. We won't, we won't make any progress. So the first thing is to think of morality of, is it, is it objective? Is it really objective? Like, does it exist in the, in the way that we think it exists? And if, and if so, how do we explain that? So let's bracket that. We can come back to that question. And then what you're talking about are, uh, you know, is, uh, so you said that the question of free will, do humans have free will? And that itself is going to be a metaphysical question. Are you a naturalist, an atheist? Do you believe that only physical things exist? If so, then it's hard to make room for free will. Or are you a supernaturalist? Do you believe that God exists and that there might be something more than just physical things? In other words, is the system closed or is it not closed? If it is closed, then you're pretty much stuck with determinism. If it's not closed, then there's no reason to rule out our basic and immediate experience of free will either. But that's not a question that science can answer. 
at all, not even in, in principle. It's a, it's a philosophical question, and ultimately it will come down to your general worldview. Are you an atheist or are you a theist? That's where free will will, will come into play. Uh, I'm convinced that free will does exist after many years of being a determinist. Here's a few problems with determinism, first off, is if you believe that everything is determined, that doesn't that not only just takes down all of morality, right? Because you, you don't hold puppets morally responsible. If you had no say in anything that you did, then how are you morally responsible for anything that you did? Right? You you can't be. It's 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 absurd. But even beyond that is it it undermines all beliefs, right? Because it's not just your actions, but all of your beliefs are also determined. So your belief to be a determinist was itself determined. You had no choice. So it, you can't say that you're rationally an atheist or rationally a determinist because that undermines all the foundations for rationality to begin with, meaning that you had some some uh, ability to freely reason through a series of arguments and by your own uh, causal powers, um, free causal powers, reach a conclusion. Um, determinism denies all that. You know, you're adopting determinism is, is no more different than a tree growing a branch. So it's not a rational position you're, because you're saying that all rational beliefs inherently arise from ir- irrational causes, right? right. So, so why would you have any belief in in anything that arises from irrational causes. So it's, it's very, there's a, there's a severe tension there. Uh, if not an outright contradiction between determinism and, and rationality, it seems to shut it off. I mean, for example, if, if all your beliefs are just a result of random clinking and clanking of atoms in your brain, mm-hmm. um, then there seems to be no reason to believe any of your beliefs, but that includes the belief of all the clinking and clanking and atoms in your brain. Right? right. <laughs> so if all your beliefs are determined, there's really no reason to believe any of your beliefs, including determinism. So it just it goes through and sort of refutes itself. I wanted to bring that up because to me that would also rule out morality. It kill, yeah, it, it's really a damaging. And this part of what brought me out of atheism of many years of doing it is is seeing that atheism ultimately reduces itself to incoherency. If you think that, and I'll just give a few examples here, uh, because atheism and I'm and we need to make the distinction. You know, atheistic philosophers make a claim about the world and they try to advance the argument. It is not a lack of belief. It is a belief. Um, it's right. not. It's not agnosticism. They're, they're saying atheist in a manner. Yeah, and if we want to be more specific, we could say that it's it's metaphysical naturalism, right? They believe that only physical things exist. There's there's nothing transcendent, etc. But there's a lot of problems with that, and I would recommend that people read the good atheists on this, not people like Sam Harris, but somebody like an Alex Rosenberg and his Atheist Guide to Reality, because he's somebody, or even the old atheists. The old atheists were a lot better, a lot more consistent, um, because they'll drive, they'll embrace the absurdities. But um, I think most people will, see, will, will, will rather question the starting premise and say, no, these, these conclusions are too absurd. They can't possibly be true. I mean, for example, if only physical things exist, right, if, we're, if all we are is a collection of fermions and bosons, well, I'm not that same collection of fermions and bosons as I was five minutes ago. So that means I'm not the same person I was five minutes ago. But if you think that you are the same person you were five minutes ago, then you should reject metaphysical naturalism. I think the biggest coup de grace of, of metaphysical naturalism is, is that it really has to deny that you even exist at all, right? There's, there's, there's no self that can be described by only physical things. So if you, if you believe that you exist, and this is, gets into philosophy of mind, and this is where many atheists will become eliminative materialists, where since they can't explain uh, how consciousness could emerge from purely physical processes, their best, their 
best explanation is just to deny that it even exists, is to just say that it is entirely an illusion. Um, but that only begs the question because there has to be someone who is therefore having that illusion. <laughs> so it's just, it just goes in a circle. Who's, who's, who is having the illusion of, of me being me, right? <laughs> and it, 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 so if you think that, that you actually do exist, which is like the one thing that we really can't deny philosophically, this goes back to Descartes, you know, uh, you know I think, therefore I am. Uh, it's like, and that was his project. He's like, what's the one thing I cannot be skeptical about? And it was that, but that is the one thing that, that if you start to drive atheism and metaphysical naturalism through, you're, you're almost forced to deny as many, as many people do. And it, it becomes completely incoherent. So between yourself, enduring selves, uh, between morality, rationality, meaning, um, you have to deny that there's any real meaning or truth. And that's where I think Sam Harris is inconsistent because Rosenberg in, in his book will say that there is just no meaning or truth that we can discern. How does that make sense if only physical things exist? Physical things are, are by themselves intentionless, conscious, you know, they don't have uh, consciousness. They're, 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 they're directionless. They're not aimed at anything, but somehow this all formed to produce something that is completely the opposite of that. It doesn't make sense. So you really have to go on to deny that any of that exists. So you and brought us modernism essentially is the roadmap for this. Well, it's the result of it. So now hopefully it's becoming clear where people can, can see that a lot of the atheistic philosophers laid the foundations for postmodernist postmodernism to emerge that tries to undermine foundationalism itself. Truth. Like they deny truth, which I would argue is a conclusion that many of the atheistic philosophers themselves had to reach. So it's, it, it is an offspring in many ways. It's not something that's causing all the problems right now. It is a result for many of the problems that have been seeded long before. Perfect. And you know what? I want to wrap on that because I know there are some people who are going to react to this episode. Surely. And I actually am hoping that we get a lot of feedback and then maybe we'll do a second one to address the feedback because there's yeah. smart guys much smarter than me who oh, men and women who are much smarter than me who will probably have something to say well yeah and to, to anybody who's listening you know who's an atheist let me just say that you know i spent the the majority of my time as a philosopher with the old atheists the existentialists i i know the worldview really really well and it was by going deeper and deeper into it that i eventually came to reject it so i think i think if anybody can be sympathetic charitable and and fairly represent the atheistic worldview. I hope it. I hope it would be me. Which is always the job of of, of, a, of a philosopher. Right? A good philosopher should always attempt to present the strrongest possible objections to their point of view. Always and and contend with those. Uh, no, avoid steel avoid. Manning. Yeah, no, steel, yeah, ex exactly that. Steel Manning avoiding the. Uh, you know, which is exactly what Sam Harris doesn't do. I mean, he just sets up crude straw man and beats the hell out of them all day long. <laughs> so, well, and to state where I am. Um, essentially is I'm agnostic mm -hmm. so people can know where I'm leaning, which is kind of nowhere. Yeah. Which is, you know, and, and I think there's some epistemological difficulties with that as well, because a lot of people want to kind of default into agnosticism, but a lot of justified true belief warrant um, comes down to how reliable you think our cognitive faculties are. And so much of, of cognitive reliability is going to depend on how you think that they originated. Do you think that they originated by unguided selection and mutation, which is not a scientific, um, in itself, a scientific theory, that's a philosophical assumption, right? 
Um, if so, then I think you're kind of left with this idea that that unguided selection and mutation, right? Only it doesn't pick beliefs for truth; it only picks them for utility. So there's really no reason to believe that cognitive faculties shaped through unguided selection and mutation would be more reliably true than false. All we could all we could really say is that is that they're just they're aimed at survival, right? Not truth you just value. Said truth and utility, which brings us right back to Peterson. Well, that's this is Peterson's kind of kind of problem, I think, and it's it's shared between Peterson and Harris, but neither of them, I think, have have the right foundations or the right view. Um, again, if you think that all of your rational abilities were the result of irrational processes, that ultimately under un, it, it undermines a great deal of epistemology of of you being able to say that any of your beliefs are true. But, 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 if you think that your rational faculties are somehow inherently designed developed, that they're functioning in a way that makes sense for the environment that they're supposed to be in, that they are generally aimed at getting truth, even if they're not infallible at it. Well, then we have some very secure philosophical foundations. Uh, And these are the foundations that have, that have really guided our intellectual uh, quest in life. I mean, they, these are the, these are the foundations for all of the scientific enterprise, by the way, you know, and that's the thing is, is science itself runs off of a, a very large amount of philosophical assumptions that itself cannot justify. Um, so even with agnosticism, you're kind of left with this this large table of potential options of how you think your cognitive faculties um, came to develop. And there's a, a very, you know, Alvin Plantinga is a really good philosopher in this regard, and he'll talk about warrant and proper function, that even as an agnostic, you should eventually go on to be skeptical of your agnosticism because you just don't know if if your faculties are reliable or not. So there's not there might be a little bit more shelter in the agnostic in agnosticism if you want to hang out there for a while, but I think it's a question that eventually people really need to 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 press in a certain direction or other. Fair enough. Mm-hmm. And challenge to everyone out there. Please participate. You can come into the Facebook group and do it. You can email me at um, unstructuredp at gmail.com or pat at chroniclesofstrength.com if you want to tackle a subject with Pat directly. I would really love to hear back from everyone so we can explore this even further based on people's feedback. Mm-hmm. Now you pat- tell, so I'm used to talking about this with, with, um, you know, a lot of my, um, uh, people who I regularly talk this through with. Uh, but I want to, I want to back up from your sake because, you know, this is, this is your show and we've covered a huge amount of, of ground. Each point itself could merit an entire conversation, if not a series of conversations. Sure. Um, what do we need to, what do we need to, to clarify or. I want to see how people react. Mm-hmm. That it, literally I threw down a wide range of questions and topics and probably left room for people to attack specific ideas or concepts, especially mine, because I'm clueless. Well, you know, there's always, you know, much, much value in, um, in, you know, intellectual humility on, on many fronts, but there's, there's the other side too, where, and I think we all, we all understand this. And this, this actually goes back, you did bring up another point of the idea of, of being selfish. And, you know, some people, this is called, um, you know, psychological egoism in, in ethical theory is saying that, that that there is no altruism because everything that we do is is inherently for our own good or benefit. And that sounds kind of nasty 
Um, but you know, I think there's, there's certain truth to that, but it doesn't show that some actions are, are not better or worse. And, and the classic philosophers, again, going through Aristotle up to Aquinas also understood this, but they, they wouldn't say, you know, selfish. They would say that every action we take is in pursuit of our own happiness, that we, we are designed to pursue happiness. Now there's nothing inherently wrong with that. But it does very much matter depend on on how we pursue happiness, that some things really are better actions than others. Sure, Not- I agree. And I, I would say mine is more of a practical view. Mm-hmm. For example, um, somebody builds a hospital wing because they want to put their name on it. Well, that feeds their ego. I don't care. I got a hospital wing. Thank you. Yeah, no, no, surely. And if, if that's like one of the great benefits of capitalism is it forces altruism in that sense in many ways. Um, but we would also, I think everybody would intuitively agree that the person who finds happiness in building the hospital wing because he want, because he gets great joy out of kids getting care and finds his happiness there rather than just having his name on the wall is doing it for better reasons. Sure. I'll take both yeah. though. Now, both are directed towards <laughs> happiness. No, no. So I'm saying you can take both of those, um, and you probably should. You know, a hospital is better than no hospital, no matter how it, how it came about. Total agreement there. But what we would kind of push at in moral theory is that the person who does it for the right reasons is actually going to be happier for it rather than the person who does it for, for the wrong reasons. So no matter what, it's directed towards happiness, but there's better or worse ways to go about it. I agree. I have a weird philosophy on that, too. Maybe that person who does it for the ego of their name starts to see the results and then derives joy from the results and can grow because I think we all can grow. Yeah, sir. I think, you know, there's often the kind of, you know, ultimate question in life of what, what is, you know, really and truly going to make us happy. Is it, is it wealth? Is it honor? Is it power? Is it glory? Is it fame? And you just go down the list and you realize, okay, it's, it's actually none of those things. And I think a lot of us need to learn. I mean, we can study the great philosophers on this and ask the big philosophical and theological questions, but I think a lot of us need to learn that through hard experience. I mean, I, I did, you know, in my years, you know, I, I pursued just about everything, Thinking that as soon as I get this, I will be happy. As soon as I get the you know the six pack abs, as soon as I as as soon as I build my business to a seven figure business, that's going to be it. As soon as I get the car, that's going to be it. And and you know there's there's joy, there's excitement, and all that. But none of that quenches that that ultimate, I would argue, transcendent desire for happiness in us. But we can build again draw upon um, Aristotle here, and then I think it was completed in Aquinas. We can get closer to a perfect happiness, at least here in this life. Um, by developing virtue, by developing virtue, and that's where virtue ethics is 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 very helpful. That there's there are better and worse ways that will actually help you to flourish. Similar, maybe to what Haidt is saying. I would have to read more of his work to see where where he goes with it. Um, and it's not just accomplishing any old thing you want that is going to make you ultimately. You might have a, 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 a an experience of excitement or joy or temporary well-being because of that but happiness in the way that it's classically defined is not just some like dopamine rush you know it's living a good life it's human flourishing and we would say that that's really only something that can be assessed like a symphony this is this way that aristotle had it is that you can't really say it's a good symphony until the symphony was over did you really have a good life or did you not you, you, eudaimonia is, is is the more term so Happiness is one of those things that it's used very differently in the in the modern sense than it was classically, and I think it's I think that's a detriment. I think looking at it classically as as flourishing, um, the attaining of virtue is a much better orientation for happiness than just some often transitory state of mental, you know, 
peace or harmony or what have you. I personally think of it as um, I seek satisfaction versus happiness. Sure. And, you know, there's, but they're obviously not one in the same. Like I can be, I can be satisfied from certain acts, even just sipping this cup of coffee, my satisfaction for caffeine, but that wouldn't make me necessarily a happy person. Right. But I don't, I don't necessarily believe in seeking the quote happy. And that's what I'm saying. The satisfaction of I did it. I did it well. Mm-hmm. You know, my birthday only comes so often I get a gift and, oh, I'm happy. I get that, as yep. you put it, transitory joy. I don't believe in that. I think of more of a satisfaction, like I accomplished whatever. And it's not always perfect. Yeah, Well, yeah. And I think you're, I think you're right in line there with, with what we've been getting at. And then the only question there is, okay, you're, you're, you're working at something. You're carving something out about yourself. Sure. And it's, that's and that's hugely important. Now the question is: Are you it's carving about the process out process versus the outcome? Yeah, no, no, one hundred percent. Now you know there might ultimately be an outcome we're working towards, and that's a, a whole other question too. But certainly, there's something about the carving out process. And this is why we say like virtues are not. You know, it's like a good tennis player. You know, like one good serve, one virtuous act does not make you a good tennis player. It's something you need to repeatedly do. It's something you need to repeatedly practice to build these types of dispositions and character traits. And I think that's I think that's what you're you're sure. getting at. Yeah. And that's yeah, that's right. That's right in line with that. Now the only question is is what specifically are those character traits that we should be pursuing? Because we can carve out many different character traits, but then we have to say, okay, are, are some better than others or some more worthwhile than others and and that's it but but that's a, you know what that is eric that's a what you said is directionally true how about that? <laughs> perfect and on that note <laughs> thank you so much for coming on thanks for having me man this was a lot of fun and it's it's often uh leads to some some naughty and 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 challenging conversation but hopefully we can uh build on it in a future chat Hi, I'm Tyson Franklin, the host of It's No Secret with Dr. T, which is a small business and marketing podcast. Each week, I interview business leaders who openly share the secrets to the massive success. It's No Secret with Dr. T will educate, entertain, and inspire you. Check it out. You'll find it wherever you listen to podcasts, or you can go to my website, TysonFranklin.com. I did not grow up with very much money. Money's energy. Money is something that, that really scares me. Yeah, I had about 60 grand in debt. Money isn't the answer. Somebody should just give me a lot of money. My dream was to be the WWE wrestler, but you realize that your dreams change over the years. Money is a tool. It's a key to a gate. And at the other side of the gate is the things that you really want to do with your life. It's the things that matter most to you. It's pursuing those values that make you ultimately happy. Listen to Inspired Money at inspiredmoney.fm.